Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, Grant and Ardis uh, and others like them there in Israel uh, serving you, uh, getting the message of the gospel out. And uh, we thank you for looking after them, protecting them, preserving them thus far. And uh, we uh, thank you for uh, helping us to understand some of the struggles uh, that they're uh, currently facing. And we do pray for the uh, Christians there in Jerusalem um, that they might um, understand that uh, the unity in Christ uh, is a remarkable thing. Uh, purchased by the blood of Christ, accomplished by the gospel, and such a powerful evidence of the gospel uh, is that uh, natural enemies uh, could become brothers and sisters, one family of God. And uh, we pray that that uh, wonderful power of the gospel might be uh, on display in a, a wonderful way. Uh, we continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and your hand upon uh, all your people. Uh, we ask that you might also bless our time of Bible study now. Uh, help us, Lord, uh, to learn how we might better reach people uh, for, the, for the gospel, people that we speak to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, now. <clears throat> My first visit to India was in 1997. My task was to teach in Bible college and in some churches uh, and also to preach at some outdoor evangelistic meetings. And I'd never preached to a group of unsaved Hindus before. And I was quite daunted at the prospect. I wasn't sure what approach to take. I said to GS, I said, I said what do I do? Uh, do I try to prove that Christianity is a superior belief system? Hinduism? Do I try to prove there's only one true God? Should I try to convince them that the Bible is the authoritative inspired word of God? I wasn't sure what approach to take. Do I try to prove the divine nature of the Bible and therefore it has the authority and we should listen to it rather than anything else? Um, what the Bible says about God and man and salvation, that's what's to be believed. We try to mount a case to prove the inspiration of the scriptures or the deity of Christ. How do you present the gospel to people who are not monotheists? How do you present the gospel to people who believe in thousands of gods and don't accept the Bible as authoritative? How do you share the gospel with people whose worldview is so completely different to a Christian worldview? I was surprised by Nye's response. He said, brother, just preach the gospel. Um, <clears throat> he didn't intend it as a rebuke, um, but it was, to me, uh, his answer was very instructive and it was also very reassuring. And it does raise some questions. How much does an unsaved person understand about the existence of God? To what extent is he aware already of his sinfulness and his need for forgiveness? Is it necessary to begin every evangelistic message or conversation with an attempt to prove by rational argument that God exists and that the Bible is true? Must we find a way of intellectually convincing people that they don't measure up to God's standards and that one day they'll have to give an account to him. Or 
Or can we assume that all people have some awareness of God and that they are indeed already conscious of their sinful condition? Is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of sin intuitive? If so, to what, to what degree? How do we go about sharing the gospel with someone who has no Christian understanding whatsoever? Now, as we continue to consider the evangelistic example of Paul, we know that if a city he was entering into had a Jewish synagogue, uh, he would go there first, open the Old Testament scriptures and preach the gospel. But we also know that Paul was specifically appointed to be an apostle to the Gentiles, idol-worshipping Gentiles who believed in many gods, who were highly immoral and had no regard for scripture whatsoever. Their beliefs and their behaviour, their whole worldview was totally pagan. And it's very instructive to us to see how Paul evangelise such people. Let's take our Bibles, please, and open to Acts, uh, Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24 is where we read about Paul's encounter with Felix and Drusilla. And what we find is that Paul assumes that they already knew some basic truths or else Paul's convinced that they would intuitively recognise the truth about what he was saying about God and sin and salvation. Felix was a Gentile. He was an utterly corrupt man. He was the Roman governor of Judea. His wife Priscilla, uh, Drusilla was the daughter of King Herod, I, Herod Agrippa I. She came from a very wicked family. Felix himself was steeped in Roman paganism. He had a terrible reputation for greed and cruelty. He had stolen Drusilla from her first husband. And both of them were ungodly and immoral people, which was very typical of the times and in keeping with their pagan worldview. And yet Paul spoke to them on the basis that they could easily understand their obligations to God. Now we need to note that Paul did have a previous conversation with Felix where he explained to him the difference between Jews and Christians. Jews are those who merely pay lip service to God, whereas Christians are those who really believe in the inspiration of the scriptures and its message. That's the difference. They had that conversation before. And yet, in spite of that previous conversation, Felix was still a pagan man with pagan understanding. And therefore, we might think that in presenting the gospel to Felix, Paul needed to have a series of conversations with Felix where he would teach Felix that it was wrong for him to believe in the Roman concept of a multiplicity of gods and teach him through systematic teaching that there's only one true God we might also wonder how Paul would explain to Felix that this one true God is holy and he, Felix, is sinful, bearing in mind that Felix's sensuality was not only acceptable in Roman society, it was actually seen as a virtue. And also that such behaviour was totally acceptable with the Roman gods. 
Therefore, we might think that Paul would have a hard time raising the issue with Felix about a future day of judgment for his life. So what approach did Paul take to evangelise this corrupt, ungodly man, lost in the darkness of pagan ideas, idol-worshipping, believing the multiplicity of gods, worshipping emperors? Did Paul think it was needful to establish an intellectual reasonableness of the Christian faith? It's fascinating to see that Paul went straight to the point, started talking about gospel matters. Verse 24, Acts 24, verse 24. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way, for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. The word reasoned means to lay out a matter. To thoroughly present a matter. What issues did Paul lay out before Felix? The issues of righteousness and temperance, self-control and judgment to come. In other words, Paul gave an extremely direct and challenging address. He proceeded on the assumption that as he laid out these three simple points, Felix would have no problem understanding what Paul was saying. And Paul also was confident, no doubt, that Felix's conscience would be aroused by these points. Now we need to say that as far as we know, Felix never did become a Christian. And yet, as far as a faithful gospel witness is concerned, Paul was confident that Felix was able to understand these issues. He was confident that Felix knew these things were true. And he was confident that Felix's conscience would be troubled about these things. And so Paul reasoned of righteousness. He presented God as righteous and God as requiring righteousness. And the fact that Felix himself was not righteous, especially in one area which Paul laid out to Felix. He spoke about temperance, self-control, which is something that Felix certainly did not have. Felix was greedy. He was a violent man. If he wanted anything, he would stop at nothing to get whatever he wanted. He would eliminate whatever, whoever was in his way. He's the man in the grip of his sensual, impulsive heart. And so Paul focused on that thing where he was most vulnerable and sensitive. And then, then Paul spoke about judgment to come, a day of future judgment where Felix and everyone else will give an account to God for their lives. Now you notice that Paul didn't attempt to present an extended apologetic argument for monotheism. He didn't spend time proving or disproving the error of polytheism. He didn't attack the Roman gods. He just ignored them for the non-entities that they are. Paul's emphasis is recorded at the end of verse 24. When Felix heard 
out of words out of Paul's mouth, these words out of Paul's mouth, he heard what he heard was concerning faith in Christ. That's what he heard from Paul. God is righteous. Felix is a sinner. There's a day of judgment coming where Felix will have to give an account. He's a man in desperate need of forgiveness. And the only way to receive that is through faith in Christ. Very direct, very effective. Notice in the middle of verse 25 that Felix trembled. Despite the fact that Felix's lifestyle was completely consistent with his religious beliefs, Paul's presentation went straight to his heart. Simple gospel challenge didn't just bounce off his heart as we might expect. It penetrated Felix's heart, caused him to fear things that previously didn't trouble him. This simple, straightforward challenge had a profound effect upon him. Now, there are things here in Paul's approach which are very instructive for us and would serve us, will serve us well in our day and age. We live in a society which is rapidly returning to the paganism and the immorality of the first century Greco-Roman world. We live in a society where people are giving up belief in one true God. We live in a society where people no longer believe that sinful deeds are actually sinful. And so they tell us, you know, why is this message even necessary? How is it even relevant? Therefore, we might conclude that our best approach with such people is to try to prove to them intellectually that God does exist and to prove them rationally that sin is real and is a problem. And yet here we see that Paul simply declared the truth about God, simply declared the fact of sin, simply declared the certainty of coming judgment and declared just as directly and as simply that faith in Christ is the solution. The gospel is the remedy. And he said these things on the assumption that even a pagan mind had the capacity to understand what he was saying regardless of whether or whether not he'd heard these things before. In other words, if we think that every point of the gospel must be rationally proved before it can have any effect upon an unbeliever, then we are, we're wrong. From Paul's example, we learn that the simple presentation of the gospel message has a unique connecting power because when we declare the biblical message, every human being instinctively realizes to some extent the truthfulness of this message and is challenged by it. Now, it may be that people are resistant to the message. People resent the message. People oppose it or give it no hint of being affected by it. But according to the scripture, as we shall see, when we do speak directly to them about righteousness and about sin and about judgment and the need for forgiveness, there is something deep inside every single person that says, yes, I know this message is true. My heart says this message is true. How do we know this? Well, for one, we see it in Paul's method. But is the directness of Paul's method confirmed 
by his teaching. Does the word of God give us any assurance that a straightforward gospel approach will have a real impact upon the inner sensitivities of present day hearers? Well, the answer is yes. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul shows us very clearly that several aspects of our evangelistic message will be plain and evident to all people, partly because they're made obvious by the natural world around them and partly because they are indelibly impressed upon each person's awareness. From that which God has created around us and that which God has placed within us, it is evident to everyone that there is a God who is invisible and powerful and holy and that everyone is a sinner before him destined for judgment. And although people may not consciously affirm belief in these things, once we explain them to them, they will carry a powerful ring of truth because there is something within them to testifies. Yes, this is true. Now, it is, some, it is true that some aspects of the gospel message are not evident from nature, nor are they written within men's hearts. For example, the way of salvation, the atoning death of Christ, his glorious resurrection, how it is that we can be born again, and how it is that we can have righteousness imputed to us. Such truths are revealed only in the gospel message itself. However, there is great encouragement for us to realise that the knowledge of God and sin and judgment are already latent within every person, no matter what class or culture they belong to, no matter how ignorant they may be or how influenced they may be by false religious ideas. Awareness of sin and guilt may be suppressed from someone's conscious knowledge, but it's always there in the soul lying just beneath the surface so that the preacher or the witnessing Christian might, by speaking about these things, stir up their knowledge of these things. Paul makes his point very clear in Romans 1, verses 18 and 19. Oops, I better turn there. Romans 1. Let's go to Romans 1, verse 18. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. The word hold there, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, the word hold means to hold down or to suppress. And what it's saying is that there are many things about God which people do instinctively know and understand because they are evident in the natural world. They're obvious from the natural world and they are also affirmed by our conscience within. We don't have to regard un unregenerate people as totally unreachable or totally unteachable as though, as though they were creatures from another planet. God has made them inwardly aware of his existence and has surrounded them with the all-pervasive evidence of nature 
What do people know from creation? What is obvious from the natural world? That's the word that's missing there. What is obvious from the natural world? Verse 20. Paul says, For the invisible things of him, the invisible things of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they, that is all men, are without excuse. Whether Paul is speaking to someone in his day like Felix, who venerated ancestors, who worshipped emperors as gods, or whether we are speaking to someone in our day, be they polytheists or animists or secular humanists, the God that we proclaim is obvious and plausible as the only true God. For even those people with unregenerate eyes, certain things are plain to see. For example, if there is a God who created the world, then he must be powerful. It's the first blank there. That's clearly obvious when we consider the size of the universe. I mean, how powerful must a creator God be to make this? And he must also be invisible. Because no one possessing such power is to be seen anywhere in the visible universe. And this invisible God who possesses such, cre such creative power must be marvellously wise. There's your third word. Marvellously wise indeed. Because the whole creation contains amazing complexity and remarkable precision and astonishing beauty and testifies to infinite wisdom and intelligence and design. And Paul says that the creation, created things demonstrate God's eternal power and Godhead so very clearly that unbelievers are completely without excuse for their unbelief. They have no excuse if they choose to hold down the truth that they know to be true about God. True God is the most natural and obvious concept to all people. The truth about God is obvious around them. The truth of God is confirmed within them. In their heart, they know this to be true. And so it's obvious that if they fail to acknowledge him, there's no possible defense or excuse which can be offered there without excuse. So when you tell someone about God, who's all-powerful and wise and righteous, it's not like they don't understand what we're talking about. But people suppress the truth about God. There's the word that's missing there. People suppress the truth about God. That's what's happened here. It's not that they don't know the truth. They suppress the truth. And what happens when people continually suppress the truth? What happens when people, as it says in verse 28, don't like to retain God in their knowledge? If people continually suppress the truth about God, if people continually reject the truth about God, then God disappears from that person's thoughts. Their awareness of God slides out of consciousness. And Paul describes that process in verses 21 and 22 where he speaks of how such people become vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was dark and professing themselves to be wise, they became 
fools. Vain means empty. Imagination means thoughts. The place in their mind which should be filled with thoughts of God is empty. Consequently, their hearts becomes foolish and dark and becomes dull and depraved so that the person lives as if there's no God at all. All awareness of God seems to have gone, but it's not entirely gone. For not far beneath the surface, it can be readily stirred up and resuscitated by gospel preaching and witnessing, which is exactly what Paul did with Felix. Now, how can we, how can we be sure this is true. How can we be sure that awareness of God can be stirred up even after perhaps many years of vain living? Well, Paul provides us with several reasons as to why we can be sure. The first one is back in verse 18. Paul says that the ungodly and unrighteous people hold the truth in unrighteousness they unrighteously in an unrighteous way they suppress the truth where it says where it says hold means to hold down or to hinder or to suppress that word there is in the is a present tense participle meaning this is something that unbelievers continually do this is something that unbelievers presently continually do that's what they are continually doing. The unbeliever has to apply constant, continual pressure to keep the lid down, to keep the evidence of God being suppressed. Now let's remind ourselves that Paul's not just talking to Jews who were raised to believe in one true God. He's also speaking to Gentiles with all their cultured idolatry. And he's also speaking to the barbarians with all their superstitious darkness. In other words, what we see here is that the word of God affirms that an awareness of God, there's the word that's missing there, an awareness of God is always present in every heart, ready to be activated, waiting to be stirred up. It is always there. It's constantly being suppressed but it's, that's the, the reason it's constantly being suppressed is because it's always there. It's always there. Now, a second powerful affirmation comes at the end of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, Paul tells us that no matter how badly man may have fallen into sin, they never lose this awareness be it suppressed, they never lose this suppressed awareness of the fact that they are accountable to God. There is a coming day of judgment. And speaking about this, we may actually stir up their conscience. Look at the last verse of chapter 1, which is the climax of Paul's argument. It comes at the the end of a long list of terrible sins. The list of sins begins in verse 24, where Paul mentions homosexuality and unpacks the reasons for it. 
Then in verse 29, he lists terrible sins in a rapid-fire motion. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. This is what people do who, according to verse 28, don't like to retain God in their knowledge. This is what people do who, who are constantly suppressing the truth about God that they know. Yet in spite of that, in spite of their resultant sin, Paul tells us that an awareness of judgment is always present as a basic human instinct. An awareness of judgment is always present as a basic human instinct. At the long list of these, these evil deeds, Paul says this about evildoers, verse 31, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. The evildoers who do the, the sins that Paul has mentioned here, they sin against the pull of an active awareness of God. They sin against the pull of an active awareness of accountability to God. They know that there is judgment. And they're constantly suppressing that awareness. But it's always there. They know it. And so the topic of judgment is never irrelevant in a conversation with an unsaved person. When you talk about judgment, you're never missing the mark. We're never talking about something they don't know about, have no concept of. Against the, the, again, the tense of Paul's words is significant. Paul does not speak of sinners who knew the judgment of God, but those who currently know it. It's not something they forget. They are reminded of it often. They are inwardly aware of God's decree. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. It's appointed a man once to die. After this, the judgment. People take pleasure in their sin, even though they are aware, however dimly, that eternal punishment does lie ahead of them somewhere, sometime. Unless there be any doubt in our minds as to whether unbelievers have active consciences which are aware of their sinfulness and the coming judgment, Paul presents another argument in chapter 2. The fact that people possess a keen awareness of right and wrong is conclusively demonstrated by their readiness to judge people by certain standards. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same thing. Now the point that Paul is making is, is that everyone has the capacity to see evil in others. Everyone has the capacity to see evil in others. And everyone is ready to react when other people do things that are offensive or disgusting or wicked. Everyone is quick to judge and condemn wrong behaviour, proving that 
standards of morality and righteousness are present in every heart. Standards of morality and righteousness are present within every heart. Furthermore, people don't overlook wicked behaviour simply because you know, that person who did that wicked thing grew up with a different system of values. We don't just let them get away with that. This is because, secondly, we all instinctively know right and wrong. We all instinctively know right and wrong. It doesn't matter what value system a person's been brought up in. If they do certain things, that's wrong. We say there's no excuse for that bad behaviour. We know what bad behaviour is. We know what wicked things are. When we see it, we condemn it in others. Trouble is, we just do the same thing ourselves. But the point is, our consciences are alive and well, leaving ourselves inexcusable in God's sight. We know what's right and wrong. Then Paul goes on further to state that the unbeliever also has an awareness of a day of reckoning. Verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? The point that Paul is making here is that even the unbeliever possesses an inborn and an inner awareness of the reality of a coming day of judgment. He's not saying that this is not something they think about. Sorry, he's not saying this is something they don't think about. He does think about but the way he thinks about it is, is how can I escape it? That's what he thinks. How can I escape it? And the way that people think they'll escape it is as long as they're better than someone else. As long as they're better than someone else. But Paul says, well, you're not better. You're actually just the same. But in his mind, he's actively engaging, reasoning or reckoning, how to allay his fear, how to allay his concern about future judgment and push it. And in this way, think about it this way, he puts it out of, out of his mind. Nevertheless, by his mental activity, the unbeliever shows that he knows within himself that there is coming a day of judgment. As long as I'm better than someone else, I'll be okay in the day of judgment. Now, in light of this, it's obvious that we ought not be afraid to talk about the issue of judgment with unsaved people like Paul did with Felix. You know, often I think we are, and I say I am reluctant to mention judgment in witnessing because we think that it might be an offensive topic to bring up with certain people. And yet we should be encouraged to clear away false assumptions which lead people to think that this is not a matter to be taken seriously. Most people may, in fact, respect our mentioning of judgment because deep down they have thought about it before. They know instinctively that they will have to give an account one day. And they've been wondering how to avoid it And we can help them know. Paul then proceeds to add another argument showing that people are 
often conscious of, activity, of the activity of God in their lives. People are often conscious of the activity of God in their lives through some deliverance or some remarkable provision or some intervention or some miraculous escape, some survival, something they know they didn't really deserve. Paul makes a point in verse 4. Or despises thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Despisest thou means do you think lightly of? Do you underestimate? Have you underestimated God's goodness and kindness and patience towards you? Now, these words could certainly apply to the Jews because as a nation, they had received the blessings of God despite their sinfulness. God never breaks his covenants. But Paul is here speaking to both Jews and Gentiles. And furthermore, he's speaking to people as individuals. His words therefore indicate that unbelievers are often Aware, perhaps vaguely, but they're often aware that God has in some way been merciful to them. Perhaps in not punishing them for some terrible thing that they have done, or perhaps by blessing them in inexplicable ways. Many people have a story to tell of near misses. Remarkable, remarkable, miraculous escapes. The question is, have they drawn the right conclusion from their experiences? Have they understood that the reason God did that is in order that they might come to repentance? Do they understand that? Or do they instead deliberately, consciously, intentionally refuse to think about it rightly? Today we may say to many unbelievers, do you, do you, have you underestimated God's goodness and kindness in your life? Have you not experienced moments when you have perhaps been in great fear or great distress or near death and you've come through that situation with a, with a heightened awareness that God's been merciful to you? Have you then said something to God that you'll obey him, you'll follow him, you'll do something for him, but, but then later, later on you just dismiss those thoughts. You actually despise your reaction at the time. The way you thought about it then is actually an, embar an embarrassment to you now. Whether Jews or Gentiles, Paul shows that many unregenerate people have tasted something of the goodness and kindness and patientness of God and sadly, unfortunately, have put it out of their minds, put out of their mind the notion that such experiences are actually God trying to reach and touch their heart, bring them to the point of repentance. They've refused to be affected. Nevertheless, as evangelists for the Lord, 
we might remind people of God's goodness to them, the grace of God extended toward them, and remind them that this good God has provided Christ for their salvation. Now, sinners may not always be sensitive, as sensitive as we imagine that they could be, but the thing is, we're not talking about things they've never thought of before. Perhaps the strongest possible affirmation of all this is given in chapter 2, verses 12 to 15, where Paul answers the question, what is affirmed through inward awareness? What is affirmed through inward awareness? Are Gentile idolaters really capable of understanding so much of what we say? Can people with no religious background expect to understand about their sinfulness? Well, Paul's word provides the answer, verse 12. It says, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law, Lord, law, are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Now this passage here speaks of not one, but two faculties within each person, even when they're unregenerate. Both of them carry the imprint of God's standards. God has written the standards of righteousness in the heart. And if that were not enough, he has also created an independent faculty called conscience, that bears witness to those standards. In other words, all human beings have moral standards indelibly stamped upon their instincts. And all human beings have a conscience. A resident magistrate, counsel for the prosecution that continually accuses us of sin. So in their thoughts, people often find themselves in great conflict. Their conscience accuses them of their transgressions. Their inner thoughts are a battlefield. The rest of their mind is taken up with trying to excuse or justify their sin. It's a constant courtroom process. When we witness for Christ, we can direct our words to their minds and hearts of people, which hearts have already been the scenes of many battles and struggles over this issue of sin. How to be free from it. And even when the conscience has been seared and rendered insensitive, it can be made sensitive again. They can be stirred up to action again. 
No human being ever completely forgets that he's a sinner in God's sight. And the confirmation of this fact is given when Paul refers to the day of judgment in verse 16 as the day when God shall judge the secrets of men. Secrets here refer to sinful things which are covered up or concealed. Every sinner has secrets. Every heart has a history of thoughts and deeds which are concealed from view and we want to keep it that way. The story is told of a time when Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock Holmes, he decided to play a practical joke on 12 of his friends. He sent them each a telegram which read, Flee at once, all is discovered. And within 24 hours, all 12 had left the country. No person on earth may know our most guilty secrets, but we know them. The people who did them know them. And the stench of guilt hangs heavily upon those people who try to hide them away, hoping that they'll never be disclosed. Secrets. They know they have secrets. They don't want anyone else to know. There's things they're ashamed of. And they live in fear that those secrets will be disclosed. That vital word, secrets, is a ringing reminder of the fact that people know that there are things that they are guilty of that they don't want to disclose, even as unregenerate people. They don't, don't merely have sins. They have secret sins. They know what they have done and the, the fear of shame forces them to hide them from view. And for some people, it's something they live with constantly. People become paranoid because there's something in their life they don't want discovered. It says in the Proverbs 28, 1, the, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Why? What's he afraid of? His conscience is troubling him, always looking over his shoulder. Nowhere does Paul tell us that unbelievers cannot understand what we're talking about when we start talking to, to them about important aspects of the gospel. He doesn't tell us that people have no idea about the existence of God, his holiness, about our own sinfulness and about the day of judgment. He doesn't say that we have to study a stack of books on apologetics as the only way of introducing people to the Christian faith. Nowhere does the Bible sanction the idea that we have to prove every bit of our gospel message inch by inch and step by step if, if unbelievers are ever going to come to faith in Christ. On the contrary, the Bible teaches that unbelievers are people who have a strong awareness already of divine things from the natural world around them and from things that God has already put within them, and who, because they are in a conscious, willful conflict with God, are highly sensitive to be challenged on these points. Now, certainly some apologetic material may be helpful, 
it may be helpful if we can answer someone's legitimate question. It might be helpful if we are able to remove an intellectual stumbling block for someone. But I think the point to remember is that the issue that people have is really an issue of the heart. The real issue is an issue of the heart and that's the thing that the gospel can penetrate. God has seen to it that people know enough already to know what we're talking about when we talk to them about God and about sin and about judgment. They have been putting such thoughts out of their minds. Here's the last paragraph here. But with the Lord's help, we can confidently speak of such things and bring them to the surface and in sharing with them, as Paul did with Felix, show them that faith in Christ is the answer. Faith in Christ is the answer. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again for the gospel. I thank you that is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And uh, Lord, even though we have believed the gospel ourselves and been saved by it, uh, Lord, sometimes we struggle to believe that uh, there is power within the gospel itself. And the mere sharing of the gospel itself is really such a powerful thing. Uh, maybe uh, not to our rational minds, maybe. Um, we've become rationalists in some way. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, uh, just help us to have great confidence in the power of the gospel. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, as we speak to people, just uh, uh, try to be aware of uh, where they're at, where they're coming from, uh, how it is just to uh, open the conversation and continue the conversation so that we can actually uh, get to the point where we are able to tell them joyfully with gladness the good news that faith in Christ is, is the answer. Uh, Lord, thank you for Paul's example and thank you for the teaching contained in the word of God. And uh, we pray that these uh, things might be helpful to us so that through them we are uh, thoroughly furnished, fully equipped to do every uh, good thing that you call us to do. Pray that you'd help us to become uh, increasingly fruitful uh, evangelists of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.